welcome to episode three of Two Hearts, a New Who podcast. My name is CJ. And I'm James. And this is the only podcast that is nothing but luminous tambourines and a squeeze box between the knees. Every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at a, an episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival. And this week we are looking at the Unquiet Dead. But they're not very quiet, are they, those dead? They're certainly not. Um, so we thought we'd start this week by just giving you guys a little bit of a, actually a bit of background on our name. It sort of came up in conversation that we hadn't actually explained what Two Hearts means. Yes. I got a message from a good friend who was like, really enjoyed the show, but what does Two Hearts actually mean? <laughs> uh, and we realised we'd neglected to do any sort of basic setup at the beginning of the, uh, the show. So. so Two Hearts... The Doctor has two hearts. We are two people. Ergo, two hearts. Simple math, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I, uh, yeah, I think we went through so many different iterations of the name, um, but this was the one that stuck. It's definitely the most simple, but it's also, I think it's quite nice and sim- sweet in a way. I don't know. It is sweet. It, it was the most wholesome of the suggestions. Uh, I initially came up with Clever Boys Running as a uh, homage to my favourite uh, companion, but that idea did not bode well with the rest of the team. So <laughs> we moved on to TARDIS course, but that felt a little too cutesy and on the nose. Um, and Two Hearts kind of really came about because uh, CJ went away and had a bit of a think and came back with this beautiful, like, mirrored heart logo thing. And it just, it felt right. So that's what we've landed on. And I should also note that that logo idea uh, was then brought to life beautifully by James. So thank you for that. And thank you for that. This is nice. I'm just patting each other on the back. This yeah. is what a podcast is for. <laughs> Wholesome content, everyone. Everything we'd need in current isolation. And isolation is still very much a thing. So so to everybody out there that is, I don't know, staying at home and doing their best to sort of, um, what is it, like lower the, the curve of the infection rate and whatnot, uh, yeah. big shout out to you guys. It's a, it's a really tough time and I don't mean to get too serious too quickly, but obviously, you know, everyone's going through it at the moment. So um, if this podcast at all helps you feel just slightly less alone, just hearing two idiots have a chat about Doctor Who, that's the least we could do, I'd say. Exactly. And we are, at the end of the day, we're real people, people. People, people, we're people pleasers is what I meant to say. And we love to chat about Doctor Who. We love to chat to you about Doctor Who. So please do get in touch with us. If you have anything from the episode has sparked your imagination or you just want to have a chat. Yes, very much so. And speaking of pleasing the people, uh, listeners, you'll note that CJ's audio has drastically improved because I bullied him into getting a better microphone. Yes, I was shamed publicly. I showed him the audio levels for our recordings and uh, look, they, they spoke for themselves, let's say that much. Uh, so hopefully from this point on, the show will sound a lot crisper for you. The audio will be a little bit, little bit nicer. Uh, and also on the topic of housekeeping, um, we are three episodes in now and looking back at our first two episodes, um, as somebody who had to spend a lot of time sitting down to edit them together, because our original recording audio files were like, you know, an hour and 42 hours. Like we... We talked for a while. Uh, So from this episode moving forward, we're going to be trying a slightly different format with how we discuss these episodes. It won't be so much of a um, minute-by-minute rundown like we were doing, but just more of a general discussion about the themes, the character work, the plot, the aesthetics, whatever it is that we feel really stands out about each week because we want to make sure that you guys are hearing us really like pull apart these episodes, not just sort of list off the things that we enjoy. 
Yeah, and I think that was one of the issues that we really ran into recording the first two was we just kept coming up to these really interesting t topics and then being like, oh, we can't talk about that now. No, we've got to wait till it's later in the episode. Um, so I'm really excited about this new format. I'm really excited about the kind of discussion we're going to have today. And I was also very, very surprised at how meaty this episode is in terms of the discussion topics and the things that were brought up by it. It's really fascinating. But we do have one other bit of housekeeping before we jump into the episode, which is a sort of major announcement from the world of Dr. To who? Like we did last week, we do want to make sure that we're keeping our fingers on the button, as it were, and checking in with uh, new Doctor Who media anytime that there's any sort of announcement or anything exciting going on there. And this week's was um, look, confusing to me as as more of a, a fan of just the TV show. The, it, the BBC announced, I don't know, I can't even say if it was the BBC, but it's the sort of various different licensing companies that make spin-off Doctor Who content have announced a joint project called Time Lord Victorious, which from the rundown, it sounds like it's going to explore another chapter of the Time War. I think it was a major, like it was such a big announcement and they really um, generated a lot of interest in what it possibly could be before they did make the announcement. I have noticed a lot of sort of online backlash, shall we say, about the formatting of it because it has, it's implied that this new story is going to be told across, you know, comics and books and audio adventures and all kinds. And obviously those things aren't free. So the idea that you have to buy all these different things to experience the story hasn't been exactly well received, but I think people are still excited about mm, what for sure I, I will say as a as a star wars fan it wasn't particularly um strange to me to see a, a media sci-fi story broken up over over different forms of media um like having to buy into like comic books and uh audio dramas and whatever else to get the full grasp of what's going on in a story is very familiar to me but i understand that to doctor who fans that's never quite been the way that they've operated no because doctor who obviously is a free-to-air show in, in australia it is but uh, in Britain, I guess you have to have a, a license fee for the BBC to actually watch the show. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I know. It's weird, oh, isn't it? Um, that is weird. Uh, sorry, Britain. Yeah, we're real sorry about that. Thanks for Doctor Who and everything. <laughs> yeah, like, cheers, bro. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually did the hang loose sign. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? it's funny because I actually saw in my head you doing it. <laughs> I am very predictable, listeners. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, what is this new? I or like, or I've seen some memes of like, you know, they're fighting a whole new time war, and I, I just, what does that mean? Help me out. Uh, I'm just gonna Google the synopsis so we we're all aware of what it is. the The cover art itself is actually beautiful i will say it's just if you haven't seen it it's got paul mcgann as the eighth doctor and chris frappleston as the ninth doctor and then in the middle there's the 10th doctor played by david tennant in time lord robes which is very exciting i think the one thing that I, I remember when i first saw it and i saw chris frappleston and i just thought oh my god they've got him back he's in the show he's he's making his comeback but now that we know that the, actually none of these actors are going to be appearing it's just their likenesses uh, assumedly that will be used chris frappleston is not making his comeback um, there's also Rose on the front uh, of that cover. We know. Yeah, Rose looking quite... Um, Sacrificial. Yeah, she's in like this beautiful flowy white dress and it's um it it doesn't quite look like Rose to me, but I this is so far out of my depth of the pool, so um, <laughs> I'm going to keep quiet on that one. 
It, it it will be interesting what role she sort of plays because I think Rose's history post her finale hasn't been exceptionally well received. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of a role she plays in this, um, especially because it's implied, obviously the Time Lord Victoria stuff played out during David Tennant's final episodes when Rose was, for all intents and purposes, sealed in another you know, dimension. So it'll be interesting to see how she actually does take part in this story. But yeah, I can't find a synopsis anywhere. This is really... I'm really That's quite... perfectly fine. Uh, listen, yeah. I'm sure if you're interested in this, this is something you can go and look into for yourselves. But it's a thing that we will keep our eyes on, let's say. I'm, I'm not sure that we'll particularly be looking to cover it in any in-depth way. Um, but if it's good, who knows? Yeah, I think we might you know touch on it as it comes up. I think it, it it's being launched over a 12 sort of week period across these different platforms. One of the most surprising things was that it's going to be May's theory of picking it up, who do VR games and also Escape Hunt who do escape rooms. So Oh, okay. It's like true multimedia Doctor Who content. Truly, exactly. And it's um it's unclear at this point as to how much of these sort of different strands you'll need to consume in order to get the full story. Yeah, we'll see. It's probably gonna be an epic story. Uh and I guess it's also timely as well, considering there's no Doctor Who really on air for a while. Um, no, that's it. We've got a bit of a gap between now and um, the Chris, well, assumedly the Christmas special. It could also be a New Year's special. With it could also Chip not be special. Return. It could also not be special. That, that's it. We're not quite sure. Speaking of which, though, um, in terms of our output for the rest of the year, something that we're looking at doing towards the end of the year, we're hoping to reach about the November mark, and then we're going to do a Series 12 uh, sort of full recap episode where we kind of get into how we feel about what's been going on with uh, that portion of the show, just in time so that you know where we're at to cover the inevitable special when that launches yeah i think it was important it felt, it felt important to us that we do cover that sort of period because it is so contentious right now in doctor who fandom what's actually going on with the current iteration of the show uh, and we don't want to be perceived as the kind of show that um for instance like i mean i, I use Star Wars as an example so i'm sorry but uh we, we don't want to be one of those people that's like oh there's only six films you know like we want to make sure that we are covering the newer stuff as and not just exclusively focusing on the classic era because we do have a lot of thoughts on on uh, Chibnall's sort of time with the show and what Jodie Whittaker's doing with the character. And we'll try and incorporate that a little bit more maybe into uh, our episodes from now on. But we are looking forward to getting a a proper in-depth discussion on that, hopefully sometime before uh, Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. It's so weird to hear you describe these episodes we're reviewing as uh, classic. (laughs) Yeah, as that came out of my mouth, I was like, well, I mean, I guess there's like classic, classic, and then classic new who as well. I mean, these are 15 years old, so it's... um, That's bonkers. The idea, yeah, these episodes are so old now, really, when you think about it. And bananas. It is bananas. Bananas indeed. Uh, But I think that's about it for our housekeeping. So we are going to transition into the unquiet day. Can't believe she's gone. Not gone, Mr. Redpath, sir. Merely sleeping. She's up and on her feet and up there somewhere. Mr. Sneed, for shame, how many more times? It's ungodly. So, The Unquiet Dead, it's the was the third episode of the first series of The Revival of Doctor Who, directed by, we had to look this up before, Eros Lynn, I believe is his, uh, the pronunciation of his name, Welsh uh, director, very prolific with Doctor Who, um, and also written by Mark Gatiss, another prolific Doctor Who author. The episode was first broadcast on the 9th of April 2005. So we've got our, our little IMDb synopsis of the episode. 
Uh, again, decidedly shit. Um, <laughs> the Doctor has great expectations for his latest adventure when he and Rose join forces with Charles Dickens to investigate a mysterious plague of zombies. The word plague is uh, debatable. Uh, yes, I'd also argue the use of the word zombies is a choice as well misleading yeah uh, yes misleading misleading is right we thought we'd this week we'd start with actually giving a sort of a basic plot rundown of how the episode unfolds just to start you off with so uh the unquiet dead sees the ninth doctor and rose land in cardiff on christmas eve 1869 and the story revolves around this funeral parlor owned by mr sneed and he's discovering that bodies in the morgue are coming back to life at the same time charles dickens is in town to read a christmas carol but he's reaching the end of his life and he's a bit well weary and a bit lost to himself, really. And these two stories converge in the funeral parlour as it appears that the Gelth, a once corporeal alien race, now devastated by the Time War, are trying to push their way into our universe using the dead bodies as kidap- as sort of vehicles to walk around in. And it all ends in a fiery blaze, shall we say. Um, it does. It does. In the, uh, it's seemingly the contractually obligated explosion. Yes. Did you notice how Chris Eccleston does a little... Mission Impossible jump from the blaze. I did notice that. I thought that was um, very charming. <laughs> it was. It was. I didn't realize it to be such a pastiche kind of, uh, ep- especially not in this episode, but I enjoyed it. Yes, so did I. Uh, so I guess let's start off with how do you feel about the Unquiet Debt? I'm surprisingly positive about this episode. I remember always kind of not avoiding it when I would think about this season or watch this season, but I wasn't exactly enthusiastic about it for a long time. But re-watching it for this episode, yeah, I was um, pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And I think that that kind of, that interpretation is just based on the fact that this is such a stellar season with lots of amazing episodes, you know, not everyone can stand out above the rest of them, but this is a solid a solid episode. How did you feel? Um, well, when I... So I rewatched this a couple of days ago. I uh, didn't take any notes at the time, just kind of let the episode wash over me. And when I watched it in that capacity, um, I had a really great time with it. Like, I, I called you afterwards and I was like, hey, this episode kind of slaps, you know? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I think it's a, a, a tight little contained adventure. Um, I think structurally it's, it's pretty well uh, put together and, and quite sound. But then I... When I went back and watched it again and started sort of uh, thinking about it a little bit more critically, my thoughts came down a touch, I'd say. I, I don't, I'm not as high on it as I was when I first watched it because I'm not sure that it holds up under the level of scrutiny that, say, um, The End of the World did. But I still think it is, on the whole, a, a very enjoyable, if flawed, episode of Doctor Who. I think that's definitely a fair criticism. One of the problems, uh, problems is the wrong word, but the tendencies of a sort of Gatiss as a writer is to gloss over or make light of very heavy kind of realities of history you know there's a sort of there's an obsession in later Gators episodes with being sort of like light-hearted and rompish and this is and at this episode there's also attempting to convey that tone but there's some really dark scenes and things uh, contained in the episode that you know that tone just kind of offsets and makes it wrong yeah well it's maybe things that should be dark but I don't think the episode ever quite plays them that way. Um, if, if you look at like, especially his uh, later work with the show, like, yeah. So Robot of Sherwood, um, I thought was, I mean, a little bit of context. Um, I don't 
particularly enjoy the historical episodes. I think Doctor Who set in the past is inherently quite limited in what it can and can't do. Uh, and I've never overly vibed with them. But then I, you know, I watched Robot of Sherwood and I thought that that was a, a lot of fun. And again, another very solid, if not particularly uh, greater reaching romp. Uh, for the show. Mm. Uh, and I think that it's maybe just a slight issue with Gatus and the way that he interprets the past. Like you said, like he does tend to glaze over any sort of uncomfortableness, any, any actual darker realities of what's going on it, during these eras in the service of a more lighthearted and to his credit, a sh- uh, the kind of um, episode set in these times that does progress quite, quite well. I think his pacing and his structure is sound it's just the the nitty-gritty that he trips up on sometimes i completely agree i completely agree i think his uh, story construction is you know not exactly flawless but you know highly enjoyable he can construct a good story that's for sure but those historical elements leave a lot to be desired i think for me personally and the other thing also to consider is that he, for a long time, was sort of the exclusive author of those historical episodes. Bar one episode, I think all of his, all of the stories he's written has been historicals, and they've been placed in that sort of one episode's inconsequential kind of slot. You know, they're not arc heavy. Not- so yeah, like in, in a lot of seasons of Doctor Who, um, or New Who, there are the occasional like... Not filler episodes. I feel like that has too negative a connotation, but just the the lighter ones, the the ones that don't really yeah. impact the overarching narrative too much. Um, they're just they're there for for you to have that adventure rock. Yeah, exactly. That's it. They're not trying too much, or they're not impressing on you too much. They're they're just fun. You know, they're fun stories sometimes. Yeah, I agree. And I think the Unquiet Dead on the whole is is a pretty fun episode, even when it does veer into darker territory in the third act with what happens with Gwyneth. It does. I don't want to say course correct, but it does veer straight back to the lighter tone with focusing on Dickens for its ending. Yeah, you're right. And I guess, and that led us right to the sort of crux of this episode and the heart of what we're going to be discussing, I think, is the course correction, as you said, from a kind of a moral quandary that the episode wrote itself into towards a traditional Doctor Who ending. Though the it is a bit um, incongruent, shall we say. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there's a, a dissonance. I don't think it's that, I don't think it's dealing with trouble on that level but there is a definitive turn once uh once the gelf come through the um the archway and they they turn from being you know these sort of like uh angel figures into literal fiery demons i, I think you do start straying into territory where it's like oh okay this has just become a very standard doctor who story whereas i feel like up until that point you could almost feel it um and this is an interesting point being that it's only the third episode of the revival that you could see it becoming uh what i think chibnall actually touches on quite well with his historical era episodes where it doesn't feel as um restrained by the structure of what a traditional Doctor Who story should be. So instead of having a large action ending, um, I feel like if this, if um, The Unquiet Dead had maybe stuck to its convictions a little bit more, you would have had the girls come through. They remain, quote unquote, um, uh, good guys, let's say. Uh, And then there's a little bit more moral complexity or or something you can talk about in there. Those angels, say angels, those, the girls, they really do the turn don't they on a dime and when they become when they turn into flaming you know angels of death it's that's it's a bit on the nose isn't it it is it's 
I would say uh, it's interesting because the moral dilemma that it introduces to the the DNA of the episode is actually quite interesting. It's just because it's done in such a hokey, on-the-nose way, um, I can't help but sort of rebel against the choice that was made there a little bit. Because it does lead to, like, the chase and the explosion and the... They, they literally look like demons. It, it's all just a touch to... A bit too much, let's say. But sure. I, I think that... If you start with the the question of the, the debate between Rose and the Doctor about what the right thing to do is in regards to letting these um, aliens through, and you know Rose sort of has her points about we can't do this to the human race, it's it's disrespectful. He has that great line about this is a different morality, you need to get used to it, which I think is a yeah. good crux for the show to rest on. But then to have him, uh, it, it's strange because. I don't feel like the episode is necessarily suggesting that he is wrong for showing them sympathy and trying to offer these aliens uh, uh, like a lifeline. Um, but the narrative does actually prove him to be wrong in his trust. And so it leaves the episode in this kind of odd area as it relates to the the core moral question at the heart of it. Yes, it does. And also by making that a sort of argument, the show does also make a statement on what kind of moral world and what the landscape is that we're currently inhabiting um i think one of the key lines is to dickens where he just oh when dickens says to you know the doctor this is impossible or something along those lines and he says you know this is the reality get used to it or go home and Mm. that and that is a statement of the world in which we're now stepping into and the morals that are inherent to that world is there aren't easy answers and we are going to you know go to hell and back to get out of this situation definitely it's just an interesting follow-up to the end of the world which did have such a like definitive moral stance to shift into an episode and obviously different writers and so they're going to have different priorities uh, but to shift from a, a strong stance about what's right and what's wrong into an episode that is very content to lead the waters quite muddied at the end because i think like as it pertains to real life and in a general sense, we can all agree that like the doctor showing compassion and mercy is always going to be the correct stance. But when the, when the story itself is contradicting that it, it just leaves you kind of with your hands in the air a little bit like, well, was Rose right to be selfish? Yeah. I think that the episode is quite content to have you pick your own, make your own decision, make your own conclusion as to, what was right and at the same time it also robs you of the uh, that ability to do so because of the revelation that the Gelf are quote-unquote evil that's it because i mean having them be as cartoonishly evil as they are it does it does strip away a lot of like a lot of what we're discussing here is obviously reading into the text quite deeply i think the text itself is i mean like to have them presented as literal fiery demons i mean yeah you know i i see from a story perspective it's absolutely kind of essential there's no way that they could have ended the episode, like resolved it as they were planning to do so. And because the alternative obviously is that they fail or they choose not to go through with it. And both of those are not only, you know, furthering this kind of moral question, but in a way that's detrimental to the characters, our you know main characters that are now going to go on, but um, is also dramatically unsatisfying. It's interesting that you say that because I'm not, convinced that it would be dramatically unsatisfying if you look at uh one of our favorite recent episodes and it's like absolutely knocks it out of the park in um uh, it takes you away it sort of presents 
a similar story just in in a reverse way like if we had started with perhaps like as it is at the beginning of the episode the Gelth are perceived to be a um uh, an invading force or an evil force and then you can maybe build that up a little bit and then flip it on its head at the end and have them be ultimately a, a force for good and not an action heavy finale uh in the same way that it takes you away does where you're you think you're building up to this sort of grand evil and then you are just building up to an emotional and moral dilemma like it doesn't have to be an explosion it can be an exploration of the human condition and loneliness or um in the case of the gelt it'd be uh, the effects of war and being cast out of time and whatnot I just think that there are more interesting places that the Unquiet Dead could have pushed its story, but I'm not sure that mm. this point in the revival that they had the the freedom to do something that interesting. I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's the unfortunate placement of this episode that means that it does need to follow a more traditional um, structure because we're only three episodes in. This is uh, this is Rose's. It's another one of those Rose educational kind of episodes, isn't it? Because it's you know she's been to the future and now she's in the past. And so everything is structured around that, about teaching Rose about the, you know, the different world that she's now stepped into of the past. And the shifting reality of those worlds as well. Yeah, that's it. So we won't be able to, I guess, open the open the storytelling capabilities of this show until further down the line. No, that's it. And there's, I found that there was a disappointingly unfortunate amount of um 2005 let's say in this episode because uh, i think rose is kind of a perfect example of this there is there's some stuff with rose in this episode that i am not thrilled about um, yeah <laughs> i was also surprised at the treatment of rose in this episode i've got to say we we spoke about this prior to recording about what a traditional kind of role when i say traditional i guess i mean the role of the companion as it had been in the past, you know, in the 20th century was one, it's often been said, you know, they were a screamer, they were a crier, they were there just to be saved. That did change towards the end of the show. And, you know, you get companions like Ace, who's much more, who have a lot more agency and they can take care of themselves. And you see that with Rose as well. But in this episode, she really doesn't, um, yeah, she just, I, I, const- I constantly found this episode sort of pulling and pushing between the traditional role of that companion and how that role is evolving in this new iteration of the show. Um, and maybe that's down to Mark Gatiss, who, you know, as we said before, is a sort of a traditionalist kind of author. He's been on record to sort of say that, you know, I think his favourite iteration of the show was the John Pertwee stuff when you had Pertwee relationship between him and Joe, where she was very much you know, sort of under his wing. A brilliant character in her own right and uh, a also beautifully played but also you know there was a nurturing kind of dynamic there and that comes to play in a little bit here it's interesting because the episode like when, when we start with rose at the beginning of the episode i i think that she is sort of playing the role that she's meant to be playing there's that really fantastic exchange that they have while they're on the tardis about you know um you get to relive a, a thousand sunsets that are you know millions of years gone by and stuff and it's it's a smart woman coming to terms with the true um, reach of, of time travel and it's quite beautiful you know and then she gets all dressed up and she's very excited to be there and that moment when she steps out of the TARDIS into the past for the first time is stunning it is it is a gorgeous use of score mm. of, of cinematography 
photography of sound design, the crunching of the snow underneath her feet. And so you get this like really beautiful moment and she's a lot of fun until the episode needs her to be a damsel. And then she mm. becomes very damseled for a, a, a stretch of time in the middle of the show. And it's, it's just frustrating. She doesn't show a ton of agency and it also reminded me of the end of the world and I guess something I overlooked in that episode where Rose plays a similar role in that episode as well you know other than being an observer she's locked up in that gallery room for a good portion of the episode and has to be saved at the end she is much better I will just preface all of this by saying she's a much better drawn articulated character than Screaming Cypher she is a real by this point in time, she is a real flesh and blood human being that we're seeing. Mm. But Yeah, I think the issue with Rose isn't so much... Uh, it's not the absence of characterization at this point, because when she's allowed to just be Rose as a functioning character in her own right, she's perfect. Um, I think Billy Piper's performance, again, in this episode, continues to be so lovely. Uh, the script serves her really well when it needs to. But the problem that I'm having with it is that when... And, and this is something that I brought up about the end of the end of the world when the tone of the show needs her to switch gears into a more uh, traditional, quote-unquote traditional role, uh, that's when we start running into some problems. I agree. And I also think Billy Piper is building on her amazing performances from the first two episodes here. I mean, the one scene that we have to, to single out for comment is the scene that she shares with Gwyneth, um, who I should note is also played by uh, Doctor Who alum, uh, Eve Miles, who will go on to play Gwen Cooper in the spin-off Torchwood. Yeah, I don't... It, it... Is there meant to be a connection there or is this just like a Peter Capaldi in the fires of Pompeii kind of moment? Um, They do draw a very specific uh, connection between those two characters in a later episode, which I personally could have done without. Because uh, I think they say something like the Doctor looks at Gwen in, in season four and she's like, hmm, do you have a family that goes back to the 1800s? And she was like, yeah. And he's like, ah, I, yeah, I knew. But yeah, getting back to Gwyneth, she, uh, her and Rose have... I'd say maybe the best scene of the episode in the little kitchen. I would agree with that. I I mean, this is going to reveal a bit about me, but I think about that scene where that portion of dialogue where she describes reading Rose's head and her vision of future London. It's just beautiful. It is. It definitely is. And it's, it's like a good, it's a rapid building of tension. Uh, it, it It is just perfectly crafted. And and this is why I'm... I'm uh, hesitant to to write off Gatiss's episodes as as purely just like you know fun spectacle because I think that when he does hone in on his characters he nails it like this is really fantastic dialogue um, and you feel the full weight of of both of these women connecting over this completely bizarre situation that they're in and it's it's great yeah that's true and it's also true you've just uh, stumbled on something that I hadn't thought of is that um, the comparison obviously can be made between this scene and the one that Rose shares with Raffaello, the end of the world. But whereas in that scene, in that moment, Raffaello is very much not connected to the narrative. It's, she's a throwaway character. It's really, it's Rose's moment. This is two female characters very much embedded in the unfolding story, very much out of their time and out of place and to, and having to, you know, make sense of what they're seeing Rose, because she's, you know, come from the future and doesn't understand the Victorian sensibilities. Gwyneth, because she is exceptionally working class, it sometimes seems like almost surprised that she's even, her luck that she's there. And also 
maybe this is reading a little bit too far into it, but also, you know, socially ostracized because of her psychic abilities. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think having um, her draw the specific connection between, you know, oh, Mr. Sneed has always been quite kind to me. Um, and, you know, you do get the impression that she has not lived a fantastic life. And I think if you combine that with her her abilities that she, she obviously makes her feel quite different from everybody yeah i think you got a really great character in gwyneth and that she has that great moment with rose a little bit later in the episode where rose is fighting with the doctor about you know if gwyneth is going to put herself in danger to help the uh the gelth cross over um and rose starts arguing about her um sort of completely forgetting that she's sitting right behind her and it's an interesting take on um sort of the the progressive feminism that rose brings to the show because like it, it speaks to a particular brand of progressive thinking sometimes that does isolate the the agency of the person that it's trying to defend. Uh, and I, I like that Gwyneth gets to have a moment where you know she says, "Yes, I understand that like you're doing this for me, but like I still get a say in in what is best for me." I think it's a, a good moment for her. Totally, and also uh, you just made me think of that. Oh, the other great line from that moment is when. She says, you know, I know what you're thinking. I've seen inside your head and you think I'm stupid. Doesn't that just speak to, they're both working class people, but Rose from her elevated perspective would, th- would think that a Victorian servant girl is stupider than her. What that, what the implications of that actually is, I don't know. But it, I think it's, it's a really fascinating portrayal of class and gender. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and uh, speaking of Mr. Sneed, um let's 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 unpack mr sneed (laughs) let's unpack mr sneed i was actually shocked by this moment when yeah yeah on first watching it so basically what happens in this episode is the doctor and the doctor and rose split up when they discover that um the old lady from the very start uh has run it's running amok in cardiff and rose goes off to find her and gets chloroformed by Mr. Sneed and it's implied touched up by him. Yeah. So she, she wake like uh, the, the doctor comes to the, um, the Morgan and rescues her and they have that whole sequence and whatnot. Um, and then we get this really odd moment where Rose launches into like a tirade against Mr. Sneed. And you know, she says, don't think I didn't feel your wandering hands, you dirty old man. And the doctor's just standing there in the background, kind of laughing about all of this. And I, I definitely don't get the impression that Gatiss wrote it to be interpreted as uh, the doctor laughing at what Sneed did. I, I don't think it's meant to be a boys will be boys moment, but it does inevitably kind of feel that way because it's part of that really horrible trope of reducing casual sexual harassment um, especially of women and just playing it for laughs and it's it's just profoundly uncomfortable because it doesn't feel and this is the same thing with rose being damseled across the past two episodes it's little instances that feel more like the the times seeping into a character who feels quite ahead of her time at other times. And it makes this kind of really confusing pastiche of Rose. Yeah, I totally agree. And it also illustrates the Doctor's role in this. Um, He plays a very moral... He takes the moral high ground in this episode in a lot of ways. That's surprised me of rewatching it. He does. This is... uh, It's interesting because I'd say that he has had cooler moments in the past two episodes like especially you know you think about he watches uh cassandra just die in front of him Mm. and it's quite a cold moment but i'd never felt 
as alienated by him as I did during this episode. He he is kind of constantly looming in the background. He watches a lot of this stuff happen. He's very abrupt with everybody. He's got no patience for them. And I don't feel... This is the least doctory he's felt to me. And I don't think that's necessarily mm. a problem because this is obviously meant to be a different kind of doctor it's just for the bulk of the episode he's just playing it in a in a very strange way and it just it just feels quite odd i don't think chris freckleson does a bad job i think he's exceptional in this episode as he is in every episode that he's in but mm, he's definitely and i think that kind of speaks to my point though is that like he's playing this like those cold moments he's playing them so well that I don't like him. <laughs> and that's like, that's definitely the sign of a good actor. Like he's doing exactly what he's meant to be doing. I think just mm. the episode, and, and it's interesting because we were just talking about this with Rose. There are times when he just kind of flips wildly back and forth between what Gatiss needs him to be in any given moment. And I, I find that to be, uh, I, I would say a fault of the episode. Um, Cause it's a really great. I mean, I, I thought it was a great scene. I, th- I think it was quite charming when he first meets up with Dickens and they have their exchange in the back of the carriage. And he's like, you know, I'm your biggest fan. And he's, and this is something I said to you before we recorded, I think he's almost very Jodie Whittaker in that moment. There's a, a frivolity to that scene that I think she encapsulates perfectly. And it makes me wonder about, you know, the the sort of connections between what she's doing, what he's doing, which I've brought up before, and I know is a contentious point, so I'm going to move right along. Uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't make that comparison at all, but I appreciate that you have. Thank you. Uh, and so, yeah, you've got like that scene, you've got the, the scene with him in the TARDIS uh, at the very beginning with Rose, where he's quite kind towards her. And again, with Rose in the basement where they sort of, they hold hands and it's like, oh, I'm so glad I've met you. So he's quite warm in some scenes, but then for the bulk of the episode in the middle, he's just very disconnected and cold. And I just get a little bit of whiplash from this episode because I'm never quite sure what it's asking me to consistently feel. I feel things in the moment, but in the moment is not the best way to tell a story. There needs to be a cohesiveness across all of it. And I feel like that's maybe what the Unquiet Dead lacks the most. Yes. And I think what you're actually driving at is that the episode obviously positions the Doctor and Rose as adversarial because of the the different positions they take in the moral question at the heart of the episode, which is, should they be allowed, should the Gelf be allowed to come through and inhabit dead bodies or shouldn't they? And because it needs to get, make both Rose and the Doctor the spokespeople for both sides of that argument, the Doctor would come off as a bit cold, Rose would come off as a bit argumentative, whatever the case may be. Um, that's another byproduct of that dilemma that's set up in the episode. And like we said before, like the episode, it weirdly proves, uh, I, I think, maybe the wrong point right. Like it, it, the narrative backs up, I think, the wrong conclusion to make about helping other people. And it, again, it just speaks to that strange inconsistency across what, what this episode is doing. Because when it's like, when it locks into what it's trying to do, and there are definitely like stretches of this episode, and a lot of it concerns... Um, uh, Dickens, who we'll get into in a minute, because I think he's the best part of this episode. When it focuses on the, the smaller human scale of what's going on and um, believable, organic uh, character moments, I, th- I think it's really fantastic. It's just that there are those like uh, weird like peaks and valleys where I'm just not entirely sure what Gatiss is doing. I I don't think it's as, as simple as that. But without getting into it too deeply and without also without knowing Gatiss's head, that is the unfortunate effect that this episode does have. Especially as we 
noted before this early in the run. Um, I think it's a good, this is a good point as well to pivot to Charles Dickens that you mentioned earlier, because mm. I completely agree also. I think he is the, the stellar, I, don't, I think we've said this about so many different things about this episode, but he is the, he is uh, one of the best parts of this episode um, by far. So Charles Dickens's inclusion here uh, isn't without precedent. Uh, it should be noted that the show has had historical figures in the sh- um, previous uh, years of Doctor Who, notably in the t- first Doctor's era when they would make a real effort to go into history and to show historical events unfolding. So you had characters like Marco Polo and Emperor Nero and Richard the Lionheart, but that really died off when you see Patrick Chowton come in. And only re- I think it really only rears its head with um, some later Fifth Doctor and Sixth Doctor stories. But this is the first proper sort of examination of a historical figure. And I know that I'm, I'm speaking to events that have yet to happen with regards to where the show goes, but this is, for my money, one of the best, if not the best, portrayals of a historical figure that Doctor Who's ever done. Um, because because obviously in later episodes, we encounter historical figures like Rosa, Rosa Parks, and Madame de Pompadour and, and whatnot in these very highly acclaimed episodes. But no other episode, to my mind really gives you an insight into the flaws and the sadness at the heart of a historical figure in as empathetic and sparse a way as it does here. Uh, The other, obviously, comparison that comes to mind is Vincent van Gogh in Vincent and the Doctor, but that episode kind of writes its main historical figure in a very large and grand way whereas this is such a understated kind of portrayal of a character um, it, is. It, it, it really is i the only it's it's not like a criticism i have i guess it's just to me and, and this may actually uh bolster your point to me what they did with uh dickens in this episode felt less like a examination of a historical figure and more like just a really great portrait of a man um, because the stuff that he's grappling with on such a human level, like, you know, reaching a late stage in your life and being disconnected from your family or just a bit disillusioned with everything. I think that stuff is really fascinating. Um, but I'm not sure why it needed to be Dickens specifically to tell that story and that moral. Well, I guess the construction of the episode and the Dickens inclusion really stems from Russell T Davies and the, you know, obviously Dickens wrote about ghosts. He wrote about Christmas. This is an episode set at Christmas time in Victorian times with ghosts. So the aesthetically, those two elements do come together. I would argue that it's not too out of the blue to have him be present in this episode. Dickens was a noted, I don't want to say social activist, but he's definitely, he's writing touched on social issues and the the sort of divide the class divide in britain in the industrial kind of industrial britain and you see a good illustration of that kind of character in gwyneth who is a very cleaned up version of the kind of servants and galley girls and stuff that you'd see in dickens novels um yeah look uh look that that's that's entirely fair i'm not overly familiar with dickens as a historical figure but look, I, I think no matter which one of us sort of lands on the, the correct read or whatever, like I, we both do agree that the the characterization is stellar. Uh, the performance by, let me just... So it's actually it's performed by Simon Callow. It's great casting because Simon Callow is a noted Charles Dickens uh, aficionado. Like, and he, it's in the same way as like, you know, Percol, I can't say his first name, Poirot can only be played by 
um, David Suchet. Simon Callow is the only person who can play Charles Dickens, I think, at this point. And he does a fantastic job. He does. I, I thought he was infinitely watchable. Uh, great chemistry with everybody. And this is this goes back to what we were talking about with Gatiss and his good structure. Like, he does have these sort of, you know, you've got the, the Snead plot, you've got the Doctor, and then you've got Dickens. And the way that they're all kind of perfectly tied together, it did feel like everybody played an integral role in, in things. Uh, and I like what Dickens brought to the overarching moral narrative as well as the actual narrative itself. Uh, because you, you've noted that um, the way that Dickens sort of slowly comes, like sort of starts the episode as as quite dead uh, and, and very sort of despondent and then goes through uh, quite a, a harrowing experience in the middle where he learns that... Um, you know, he starts sort of questioning that at that point in your life, later in your life, if you suddenly learned of the existence of aliens or, or magic or you know, whatever it is, uh, would you then start thinking, oh my God, I've, I've wasted, I've wasted my life because, you know, the thing that I thought was everything and real and important is just like a small part of, of a much larger picture. And so he grapples with that massive question. And then by the end, you know, comes into his own, um, is revitalized. Like the doctor says to Rose, but in your time, he was already dead. We've brought him back to life and he's more alive now than he's ever been. And it's just a really beautiful little bit of character work that they do there. Totally. And I, I love watching Dickens sort of, um, as you say, come back to life. Um, and it, that line in particular obviously links back to what Rose says at the very beginning, um, which is why also I think Dickens is a, a perfect sort of addition, a character to have in this kind of story, because this episode is very concerned with life and death and the separation of those two things. And you have that line at the very beginning where Rose says to the doctor, you know, I've noted you can go to days that have been and gone and people that have, you know, passed on to you them and to you they're alive, which is a very optimistic and hopeful spin on a later episode which we will obviously get to um i was gonna say is this sort of planting the seed for where we go with father's day yes exactly it's it's a it's a nice it's a nicer reading on the time travel as opposed to everyone is dead in the future it's everyone can live through time travel mm. and they bring you know thematically figuratively they bring charles dickens back to life and give him a, a renewed sense of optimism and hope at the end of his life i think it's just it's so sweet and really mm. uh, and again another example of what a fantastic kind of storytelling tool doctor who is that it, it can tell for this week alone it can tell this story it's really great I, I completely agree on the i guess like the the more broader topic of of the show and sort of the lore and what they're doing with it i like the little bits of time war stuff that we got to experience this week mm. we don't learn a lot about the time war in this episode but we do meet another alien race who are who have been devastated by the effects of the time war which isn't it it's actually i didn't think of this at the time but it's a, it is an interesting tool to wring out a bit more guilt from the doctor to have him encounter the sort of the fallout of his actions again and again and again it makes me sad that we never see the gelth again because um despite how they're portrayed sort of in the the third act uh when we first get to have a good chat with them and they explain um, the time war as it affected them being higher forms of of consciousness or of uh psychic ability or whatever it is that they're actually referring to there that it wasn't so much the literal physical impact of war it was more the way that it was rippling through time and sort of disturbing things on on a higher plane mm. and so the there are races out there that are 
perhaps grander or not necessarily more powerful, but just on a different scale to the Time Lords and that the Time Lords' actions were impacting these sort of far, far reaches of, of the galaxy. Uh, it does make me think of the, the Timeless Child stuff recently, where you now we're sort of left with a show that has... Uh, between the the Timeless Child reveal about the Doctor being, I, I guess, ostensibly part of just a completely different race with a, a very impressive set of regenerative abilities, between that episode and Can You Hear Me, which introduces like the, the, the Eternals, uh, which I know were something that were in Classic Who. What I like about things like the Gelth and, uh, and the Eternals and whatever the Doctor turns out to be a part of is this idea that Doctor Who can maybe push and pull at, at just different parts of the story that aren't just the Daleks or the Cybermen or sort of the, uh, Ice Warriors or aliens that we've seen before. It's uh, And this is something that with Gwyneth that they explore a little bit as well, like the idea of having a, a genuine human psychic. I want the show to get a little bit bolder in, in what it could incorporate. And I'm liking that I'm seeing that in season 12 it's just interesting that all the way back in season one we get this sort of like little hint that there are just other things going on in this galaxy other than just the the time lord stuff definitely it speaks to yeah like a larger universe the implications of the time war and also the rules shall lack or lack thereof of of time and time travel um one of the interesting kind of cuts from this episode was that an original earlier draft and you'll love this james because it's a connection to period of mids and mars your favorite <gasps> episode it's all coming together folks <laughs> is that an early in an earlier draft of this episode the doctor would have taken rose into her future so she could see the reality of what a gelf infested um future earth would look like and and that in and of itself would open up an entire discussion about the potential futures that uh, exist simultaneously with our own current you know plane of reality yeah um, very much so like wibbly wobbly timey wimey is um i know it's a, a bit of a hated term amongst uh, fans maybe but uh like cj and i have had many conversations uh, specifically now with the, the revelations of season 12 in mind about how the, the actual structure of time works within the show. And I think the closest uh, sort of agreed upon stance that we have is just, don't know, it's, it's just a big old question mark. And I think that that's not necessarily a negative. Though. I don't use that as a pejorative. I, I think the endless potential of what Doctor Who can do as a, a sci-fi slash science fantasy story is just untapped and i like seeing little glimpses into what it could become definitely and i guess because the show needs to focus on the continuing adventures of an alien in a time box it can't it doesn't stop to linger on those implications for too long before it resets the this narrative status quo but oh, it is juicy when it when it comes up it is. I think it's best summed up with a Shakespeare quote. I'm going to sound all... Well, it would be all intellectual if the show itself hadn't just given me this quote to use, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt up in your philosophy, even for you, Doctor. And I think that really nicely captures what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, just the, the potential of, of what's out there. Uh, and I like that mm. The Unquiet Dead does tap into that this early into the show as well i think is, is is quite good absolutely i yeah i still think about that line and, and the narrative and the creative possibilities of of a show that would explore not only the philosophy of the universe but you know much more domestically just the doctor's philosophy what do they believe how do they think the universe is constructed 
all these kinds of things that are get hinted at through the show, but never really explored or extrapolated on in a, for my money, satisfying way. Yeah, that line and also Gelf as a concept really do bring to mind what could be. There is one other thing which I think we need to just lightly address, which is something that happened in real world around the broadcast of this episode. It was noted by Lawrence Miles, who is a Doctor Who theorist and writer on many a topic, that in the, I think about an hour after this episode aired, that there's a potential anti-immigration kind of reading for this episode, should you want there to be. We're not going to go into it too deeply because I think it would be crass of us to discuss a reality that we really have zero knowledge of or understanding of. But for anyone who is interested, there was a comparison made with this episode between the Gelth and people seeking asylum. And it would it would not it wouldn't carry as much water as it does if it weren't for an earlier comment where the doctor makes a, com- a, a sort of comparison to Sneed about the aliens being foreigners by way of explaining to him the, what the Gelth are. If it weren't for that moment, then I don't think that that theory would hold any water at all. But it, yeah, if it is there, personally, I don't, I don't think it is intentional. I don't think it's a good reading of what actually happens in the conclusion with the Gelth, especially considering that they become cliched evil in the end. Very irresponsible if that was the intention, but it is it is there. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on it at all, James. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that uh, being two white dudes from Australia, it's, it's not our field to comment on with any sort of authority. So obviously take it with a grain of salt, whatever we say, because we can analyze a text just, just as this writer has done. And I respect anybody who uh, chooses to to sort of pull apart a work and maybe take a look at even what it is unintentionally saying because like we talked about before there is very murky water about what this narrative is saying is the correct stance to have on people seeking help i don't think it's it's coded as any any kind of racial commentary but again it's it's not it's not something i'm i'm happy to speak on with a huge amount of confidence other than to say that i i don't believe it was the intent of the story but i do think that there uh, once an author releases a, a piece of work to the public, their role in things obviously does change. And if an audience member interprets something a certain way, it's not up to me to say that they're incorrect in doing that. It's just not how I personally read the text. Totally. And if we were gonna, if we were gonna seriously pursue this line of thinking, then we would have to consider every single invasion narrative that the show has ever done. And um, I mean, that's a that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> it, it, it really is. Like, and like, it's something we talked about with uh, Mickey in the first episode as well. Like, it's not as if like, uh, there isn't any relation to uh, uh, between racial politics and sci-fi, especially as a genre that has traditionally been um, quite progressive at times and, and very much used as as metaphor and analogy for a lot of real world political issues. It's just to specifically dive into uh, the accusations against this episode does require a lot more context than we have time to go into. And it, look, we will link it in the show notes. We're more than happy for you guys to uh, have a read and make up your own minds. It's it's certainly an interesting take on a piece of media, and we would never want to not encourage deeper thought. So totally. And I think with that, that brings us to the conclusion of our discussion on the Unquiet Dead. The only other stuff we could really comment on, like you know, I, I do think it's beautiful. I think it's quite well directed. In, in 
a general sense, aesthetically, it, it's quite a pleasing episode. Uh, Murray Gold's score continues to be quite lovely. Eros Lin, I apologize if I butchered <laughs> that name. Uh, the direction is on point. I, I think it's it's a very nice looking episode. I get a lot of like warm lighting and and like a soft glow that I typically associate with classic Who. So that felt kind of hmm. comforting in a lot of ways. Yeah, I totally agree. And if we had more time, then I would I would love to go into a discussion about the Victorian sensibilities of this episode. I think there's a lot of the like the medium stuff and the spiritualism mm. of the episode is right up my alley. Um, I love that kind of stuff. Table wrapping and seances and all that stuff is uh, phantasmagoria. Just that word alone. Phantasmagoria, is... exactly. Absolutely wonderful. Obviously, we don't have enough time to go into all this, but I'm keen. I'm very hugely interested to discuss it further. So, if you do have uh, any thoughts or feelings about things we haven't discussed in this episode, feel free to drop us a line. Our email is twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. And that is two spelt out as the word. If you want to send us an email, if you've got uh, deeper thoughts that can't be summed up in a tweet, uh, if you do want to tweet at us, you can tweet at two hearts pod two is with a two this will all be in the show notes of course as always uh we always welcome feedback uh obviously let us know what you think of the new structure of the show we are very much still learning so we appreciate your patience as we we sort of get our shit together as it were um (laughs) but we do we do do appreciate uh everyone who has listened Uh, i have to give a special shout out to julia because she will kill me if i don't so that's that on that um (laughs) i've just remembered we forgot to give it a rating I would give it a solid B. Um, It was nice to rediscover this episode and the ideas presented in it, but it's still, unfortunately, it's not um, a standout of this season. Um, That's not, that's not to discredit it, um, but it, yeah, a B. I'm going to stop myself before I start rambling. (laughs) I I, I would agree with that. Um, Like that first rewatch, like I was like, oh yeah, this is a solid like A minus. I'm having a great time. But you know, the more we've sort of pulled it apart a little bit, I do think it does land on a B. It's, I mean, that's all you can really say. It's a solid B episode. It's neither here nor there. Uh, But look, I had a really good time pulling it apart. I think there are a lot of interesting ideas going on. It just doesn't land them all. That's, that's the only thing. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but you know, that's the game. That's in the game, as ABBA once said. Um, And the name of our game is podcasting. All right. Um, as always, I have been James. You can reach out to me on Twitter at at OMG more James. And I've been CJ. You can reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at CJ McLean underscore. And a little preview for next week. We are going to be covering the two-parter episode as just one episode for us. That way it gives us a chance to fully talk about the story all at once. And uh, we can really pull apart this controversial Slovene story arc that happens. Yeah, the aliens of London and World War Three. I am keen as a bean to discuss these episodes. Beans make you fart. <laughs> Beans make you fart and Celine's fart. And there we go. We've wrapped up the episode. Gosh, we're clever. We certainly are. All right. You guys have a lovely... Uh, no, not you guys. I should stop saying you guys. It's a gendered thing. All right, folks, you have a lovely week and we will see you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye.